following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Fundamentals of Gnostic Science. We are continuing this course on the fundamentals of Gnosticism. It's both a tradition and a way of practice. The word gnosis in Greek means knowledge, direct experience of mystical truth, that which has been symbolically explained within religion. In the cryptic language of the prophets, whether it be through Arabic, Hebrew, Greek, etc. Gnosis as a Greek term applied to Western studies is our direct cognizance of the divine, that which is born from our own conscious experience of the truth, which has been taught within all religions, irrespective of a particular culture, language, and identity. And so when we talk about Gnosis, we talk about our own personal relationship to our inner divinity who is within us, which has been given many names. The Buddhists refer to the divine within as the inner Buddha. And Buddha means awakened one, cognizant one, a luminous being, a perceptive being. Amongst the mystics of Israel, the teachers of the Kabbalistic tradition, referred to God as El, as breath, as presence, as a force, not as an anthropomorphic figure of tyranny, one that dispenses lightning bolts to a poor, suffering humanity. Instead, that is a symbol for something personal and intimate within us. Divinity is an intelligence, a presence, a force that we can access when we learn to develop our consciousness, our cognizance. And so gnosis is that direct relationship that we acquire when we know how to cultivate qualities of superior being, superior ways of understanding within our mind, our heart, and our body. But likewise, gnosis is, uh, as the experience of the truth, has been taught in different ways, in different religions, in a pristine form in its original root. 
we say that in these present times, the Gnostic teaching within those religions has been lost. People who only believe in a tradition, who follow a specific leader or member of a group, many times fail to understand how to cultivate a personal relationship with the divine. And so in these studies we state that those who have genuine knowledge do not need to believe in anything. We do not follow anyone. We do not follow uh, a pope, an imam, a priest, a rabbi. We do not follow any individual. We seek to follow our own knowledge, what we test, what we verify, what we experience for ourselves. And in that manner, we learn to differentiate and to discriminate between different teachings and to understand that which is the spiritual within those different doctrines, those different faiths, those different religions, in their original form, not as they are being taught today. Because if we look at the state of being of these different uh, faiths or religions, whether it be Catholicism, uh, Islam, Judaism, we find that many traditions are now really focused on the external and following a, a certain form of dogma and not really cultivating a personal relationship, an intimate relationship with the divine. So in this course, we're discussing what are known as four pillars, four foundations of genuine spiritual knowledge and understanding. And Gnosis is explained and understood through four pillars, four, uh, four cornerstones, we could say. It has been known through science, it has been known through mysticism, it has been known through art, and it has been known through philosophy. In ancient schools of mystical teaching, the precepts of genuine spiritual science were taught and elaborated through artistic forms in a philosophical way. Science, mysticism, art, and philosophy were once an integral unity. They were not separate as we find today. Our science today is divorced from spirituality. Our spirituality is divorced of reason in these present uh, modern times. Likewise, our art no longer reflects the genuine spiritual principles that the ancient masters of art like da Vinci or uh, music like Beethoven, Wagner, Chopin, Liszt, many great classical composers once followed. And likewise, the philosophies of the day, uh, our postmodern era, is divorced of genuine experiential verification of the truth, of facts, of things that we can test and, and know for ourselves. But as we're going to explain in this course, uh, really science, mysticism, art, philosophy are, cannot be separated. They cannot be divorced from one another. And so as we're going to explain in this lecture on the first pillar of Gnostic wisdom, we're going to discuss the nature of science. And the root word of science comes from scientia, which means knowledge. And in the previous lecture, we explained that uh, from the German root, I believe it's German, is schizein which is where we get science as well. Schizein means to split, to render, to break apart. And our science today, which is no longer uh, in balance with our most ancient traditions, is split. It is divorced from any sense of mysticism, any sense of uh, spirituality, except for uh, a few exceptions where certain scientists are now investigating Buddhism in order to explain 
quantum mechanics, subatomic particles, how light can make decisions, light particles, in certain experiments. This testifies to the nature of the mystical reality of, of genuine science. That mysticism, which means uh, from the root word mayin, to close one's eyes, is the closing of our sensual perception and the awakening of our spiritual perception. To know that which is true from a conscious uh, standpoint. So we find that uh, in Gnostic science, we are exploring that which has been taught within ancient uh, scriptures in a cryptic way. And we're going to elaborate on how science in its genuine form has been taught within the most ancient schools of philosophy, of uh, literature, of art, and of different cultures. So uh, one thing we emphasize is that Gnosis is lived upon facts. It withers away in abstractions. And it is difficult to find even in the noblest of thoughts. This is a statement given by Samael and Vayor, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, emphasizing that no matter how noble our aspirations, our, our beliefs, they are fruitless if we don't experiment, if we don't test, if we don't verify and if we do not uh, take it upon ourselves to really experience what different prophets have taught. And this is the basis of genuine uh, uh, religion, we could say. And the word religion comes from the Latin religare, to reunite with the divine. Not through beliefs or attending a group, but through spiritual experience. So one thing uh, we'll talk about in this lecture is how uh, Gnostic science is boiled down to three fundamental principles. You could say three sciences. And we'll be talking about those three sciences in depth, which were taught in all the most ancient schools of mysteries. We included in this image a woman carrying a serpent from the Egyptian pantheon and a famous inscription written by uh, Beethoven, a, a Freemason, who... Uh, had a painting of a, uh, the Virgin Mary, or you could say the Divine Mother from Hinduism, the feminine divine, with the following words, I am the one who has been, is, and will be, and no mortal has lifted my veil. This is an Egyptian maxim, and we're going to talk about Egyptian mysticism in depth today, along with Greek dialectics, Greek thought and philosophy, in terms of psychological terms and uh, as well as the Hebraic mysticism, the Kabbalah. But uh, this inscription refers to how we must tear the veil of ignorance that blinds our spiritual eyes from knowing the truth. That veil is our own unconsciousness. And we state in these studies that we have the potential to expand consciousness to an infinite degree. This was stated by the 14th Dalai Lama. And this image of this woman holding a serpent refers to... uh, the Egyptian roots of the mysteries of Isis, the ancient Egyptian mystery schools that taught precisely these fundamentals in their school in their organizations, in which the Freemasons followed, such as Beethoven, Mozart, many other great uh, spiritual masters or composers. So we must tear that veil that blinds our perception to the truth.
So we have to emphasize that our physical sciences in this present day are not the end-all, be-all. The famous theosophist Ledbetter stated, It is the commonest of mistakes to believe that the limit of our perception is also the limit of all there is to perceive. Materialistic science, as well as religion today, is based on dogma. We may receive certain facts about phenomena without fully knowing the hidden root cause of that phenomena. Immanuel Kant referred to a principle known as, in, his, in his philosophy as noumena, the truth, things in themselves, the principles behind physical matter, the energy or the, or the principles behind any type of phenomena that we experience. Our scientists today, many of them focus on empirical data and fail to recognize that there is another means of investigation that we can cultivate which is learning to awaken our spiritual perception and to verify the truth behind any type of uh, phenomena. And uh, the demarcation between Gnostic science and materialistic science is a, a standpoint of perception. We have many exercises in this tradition, such as meditation, such as uh, exercises of awakening consciousness in dreams. In order to investigate the different regions of matter, energy, and perception that exist not only in this physical dimension, but also in different dimensions, which are accessed in uh, the realm of sleep. And so we state that uh, the heavens mentioned in religion are precisely the different... uh, realities we can access when our physical senses shut down and our consciousness can expand and verify and test and know directly the mysteries of life and death, the source of all things, the laws that govern not only physical nature but also our spiritual nature. And it is sad to see that in these present times, modern science looks at ancient civilizations with scorn as if these individuals of the past, whether it be the Aztec or Maya, the Egyptians, the Greeks and Romans, were primitive. Meanwhile, uh, no one could deny the tremendous mathematical and astronomical knowledge that these cultures possessed, where there are certain architecture and sculptures, structures dedicated to religion, to religious principles, were highly scientific and mathematic, mathematical. Their knowledge and the symbols attributed to their cultures are conveying a a mysterious science, a mysterious truth. They did not believe in false idols, as if they literally believed in a statue as a god. Those statues of the different traditions represent principles in nature that we can learn to verify, to speak with, and to communicate with. And so we have to understand that uh, these ancient cultures were not ignorant they were much more advanced. We look at our present-day humanity and we find that human beings have launched themselves to more wars and violence. There's more chaos, there's more confusion, there's more destruction. And we have to seriously consider how the ancient civilizations once developed a type of knowledge that is superior, which we can experiment and verify. So the following quote is from... uh, Helena Petrovna Bolvatsky, she's the founder of the Theosophical Society. She wrote a book called Isis Unveiled, 
You should say this is the precursor to her larger work called The Secret Doctrine, of which we study in depth. And so she emphasizes in this quote how materialistic science is not the pinnacle of the human achievement. We can learn many things from studying matter, but likewise we learn with uh, esoteric procedures how to uh, investigate energy and consciousness, which are beyond physical matter. She states, The recognized laws of physical science account for but a few of the more objective of the so-called spiritual phenomena. While proving the reality of certain visible effects of an unknown force, they have not thus far enabled scientists to control at will even this portion of the phenomena. So we see that um, as uh, wonderful as many of our achievements are in present-day scientific efforts, they are not necessarily absolutely conclusive of... uh, how we understand our experience. The truth is that the professors have not yet discovered the necessary conditions of their occurrence, meaning there is a spiritual principle behind every physical phenomena, as Immanuel Kant explained. They must go deeply into the study of the triple nature of man, physiological, psychological, and divine, as did their predecessors, the magicians, theurgists, and thaumaturgists of old. As the dawn of physical science broke into glaring daylight, the spiritual sciences merged deeper and deeper into night. And in their turn, they were denied. So now these greatest masters in psychology are looked upon as ignorant and superstitious ancestors, as mountebanks and jugglers. Because, forsooth, the sun of modern learning shines today so bright, it has become an axiom that the philosophers and men of science of the olden time knew nothing and lived in a night of superstition. But the traducers forget that the sun of today will seem dark by comparison with the luminary of tomorrow, whether justly or not. And as the men of our century think their ancestors ignorant, so will perhaps their descendants count them for know-nothings. The founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, Samael and Vior, stated that what science accepts today, it rejects tomorrow. What it rejects today, it later accepts. And he also, um, he also emphasizes in a very clear manner, a differentiation between two sciences, as we've been indicating. There are two types of science. The first is nothing more than a composed heap of subjective theories that abound out there. And the second is the pure science of the great Illuminati, the objective science of the being. The being is a term we use in this tradition referring to the divine as presence, as cognizance, as perception as we could say, God, which is within us, not outside. This intelligence is something we can access. And to become one of the Illuminati is, of course, is uh, to be illuminated, to have that direct perception of the truth of the divine within us. And we could state with certainty that the first science is nothing more than a subjective conglomeration of ideas, because we have many theories about life, of the origin of the universe, of the cosmos, of uh, the ancient histories of humanity. But uh, they are based on material phenomena and ignore the spiritual roots of uh, physical life. So we say that there are three esoteric sciences. And Gnosticism as a tradition is founded upon three specific cultural uh, teachings. We have the mystical Kabbalah of Judaism, 
We have the Egyptian and Middle Eastern doctrine of alchemy. And then we have the Greek dialectical teachings or philosophies of uh, psychology. So uh, we state that this Gnostic path, the modern Gnostic movement, follows these three sciences and cultivates them. And so we're going to talk in depth about these three different aspects of esoteric science, what it entails, how do we cultivate it, how do we apply it in order to understand our relationship with the divine. So in the Gnostic path, we live practically in the most complete equilibrium. We study alchemy and Kabbalah. We work on the disintegration of the psychological eye, the mind, the sense of the egotistical or subjective self that we say is me, mine, etc. Alchemy um, and Kabbalah have been taught in in many different ways, uh, primarily in relation to the uh, book of Genesis. Kabbalah is the tree of life, a map of the cosmos and the divine, which we're going to talk about first. And alchemy is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These are symbols. These are not literal trees that existed in some remote part of the Middle East, which Adam and Eve ate from and were banished. And likewise, the subsequent suffering of humanity. These are symbols. And so with uh, Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology, we emphasize that these are three specific practical uh, teachings which are really one unity and which we... Uh, study separately, but also together, because they uh, integrate completely. So we'll talk a lot about some of the etymology, be- etymology behind these words and uh, how they've manifested in different traditions. So Kabbalah is a map of consciousness, from physical matter to the highest regions of perception. So the bottom of this tree, this glyph, we see Malkut, which in Hebrew means kingdom. This is our physicality. This is our physical world, our physical existence. And uh, we see here that it is at the bottom of this glyph, meaning it is not the end limit of all that there is to perceive and know. We say that this, this image is a symbol of understanding who we are and what we need to aspire to if we want to know uh, through Gnosis, directly the truth. At the top of the tree, we have higher regions of energy, matter, and consciousness. And likewise, at the bottom, as this, we descend down this tree, we enter into more dense aspects of matter, energy, and perception. Above Malkut, our physical body, we have Yasod, which is our energy, our vitality. So when we wake up in the morning, rejuvenated and renewed, That is the work of our vitality, our vital energy, which gives us life. Likewise, we have uh, our emotional energy relating to Hod in Hebrew, which means splendor, our emotional states. Likewise, we have Netzach, which is mind, intellect, conception, thesis, antithesis, etc. And above that, we have more rarefied aspects of consciousness relating to will and consciousness specifically, and our spirit, our divine uh, being, we could say. And so, in this tradition, we study the tree of life in depth, in a practical manner, in order to understand who we are, as well as to interpret the different scriptures, such as the Bible, such as the Quran, 
and many traditions. This uh, glyph can be used to interpret any pantheon of or tradition. Notice that at the top we have uh, Trinity, which in Hebrew is Keter, Chokmah, Bina, which in Christian terms is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are forces, not people. Intelligences and energies that we can work with and verify. Or amongst the Hindus, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Amongst the Egyptians, Osiris, Horus, and uh, Isis. Different names. And this glyph helps us to understand many traditions and to understand where the original root is. So uh, to quote from Dion Fortune from her mystical Kabbalah, uh, a very profound uh, modern work on a very ancient uh, technique and tradition. The tree of life is a glyph, that is to say a composite symbol, which is intended to represent the cosmos in its entirety and the soul of man as related thereto. And the more we study it, the more we see that it is an amazingly adequate representation. We use it as an engineer or the mathematician uses his sliding rule to scan and calculate the intricacies of existence, visible and invisible, in external nature or the hidden depth of the soul. So I just mentioned some of our uh, psychological applications to us. This is also a map of different dimensions. These uh, principles exist in different layers, like an onion, different uh, levels or modalities of, of being, and different forms of matter. When we go to sleep at night, physically our body rests, and our soul, which relates to uh, our willpower, and which is enmeshed in thought and feeling, enters into this realm known as Hod, the world of dreams. It is a different level or dimension of being. It is a place in which life exists as a form of materiality. Nothing vague or vaporous. But unfortunately, because our consciousness is not developed, we typically enter into that, that world either completely unconscious or if we may have some sporadic dreams, which are very chaotic, very uh, uh, fantastic. Nothing rooted in um, um, anything divine, we could say. In that realm, we can access and awaken our perception to a higher degree, in which we cease to dream, but in which our soul, our consciousness, divested of its physical form, can learn to investigate and perceive that dimension, that realm. This is what people call out-of-body experiences. Uh, we call it dream yoga, to practice union with God in dreams. Because so the word yoga, from the Sanskrit yoga, means to unite with the truth. And uh, this glyph helps us to understand different dimensions in which we can access when we know how to develop our perception. And uh, there are different religions have called this heaven heavenly realms, heavenly ways of being, heavenly states of perception. And the Kabbalah, this tree of life, is a map in order to help us understand the language of the world of dreams, the world of uh, spirituality. And so Samael and Vior in his book, Tarot and Kabbalah, stated, the objective of studying the Kabbalah is to be skilled for work in the internal worlds. One who does not comprehend remains confused in the internal worlds. Kabbalah is the basis in order to understand the language of these worlds. So many prophets, such as Daniel, explained that the uh, 
the world of dreams is a symbolic world. People have talked about dream language, dream interpretation, knowing uh, how to ex- uh, interpret the dreams one experiences. Uh, in these studies, we say that dreams are subjective, belonging to our egotistical self, but a vision is something else. We project dreams and, uh, in that realm, but a vision is when the mind is receptive and calm and which we uh, experience for ourselves in a dramatic form, a teaching given by the divine. And so I remember uh, many years ago when I first started this teaching, I was practicing exercises of meditation in which uh, by entering into a state of silence and quietude of my mind, I physically fell asleep. And then I found myself in, a, in the dream world, in my house, we could say is the astral plane, the world of emotions. And I uh, invoked and prayed to the divine within me to teach me something useful that I can use to guide my life. And uh, in a miraculous way, I was shown a television screen. And on the television screen, it stated in scrolling letters, like in a film, the path of the self-realization of the being. And we say in these studies that the being is our spirit. We could say chesed in Hebrew, which means mercy, the truth within us, our own particular God. And I remember seeing uh, an image very similar to this glyph. I saw five, uh, two rows of five portraits of faces of people going lengthwise, not vertical, but horizontal from left to right. So there were five above, five below. In the top left, I saw an image of a very divine and powerful old man, the anthropomorphic Jehovah, we could say, a figure of a divine and elderly figure of wisdom. I saw many other faces too, but at the very bottom on the far right, I saw my own face. And uh, this was at a time where I didn't really study the Kabbalah in depth. But then I meditated and I read certain uh, texts that we have in this teaching in which I... uh, realize that those ten faces are the ten spheres of this image. And each sphere has its own portrait, its own uh, personality, we could say, its own way of being. And of course, I was at the very bottom, meaning Malkut, the body. But I was learning to perceive that uh, the complete human being, the complete person, is more than just a physical body, but is also vitality, emotion, mind, will, consciousness, spirit, and the Trinity above. So it's a very powerful uh, representation of understanding who we are and our fundamental root. So that's a, the world of dreams, we could say we can experience visions and we can be taught symbolically something about ourselves. And we teach many ways of how to access that state of consciousness so that we know how to get guidance from God and that we do not need to rely on anybody or any group. So Kabbalah is a teaching that was divorced from the Bible, at least amongst modern Christians. And uh, Dionne Fortune, she's a modern writer on the Western esoteric tradition, uh, has a lot of criticism towards the present-day Catholicism that many worship and follow, precisely because this tradition uh, has lost its roots. Jesus was was a rabbi who taught Kabbalah, in his language, in his parables, in his allegories. Such as, you must be born again of water and spirit, he said. Well, knowing the Hebrew alphabet, we know that water is mem 
in Hebrew. Spirit, or fire, is shin. And to be born from the breath, the wind of God, is hey. You spell those letters together, you spell Moshe. And Moshe is uh, an, an archetype or symbol of how we cultivate our will in union with God. So the, the New Testament is dependent on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a language of Kabbalah, which modern Christians have divorced themselves from, sadly. And if we do not know Kabbalah, we cannot interpret the symbolic language of the Torah and the New Testament. For as Dion Fortune wrote, the Kabbalistic cosmology is the Christian gnosis. Without it, we have an incomplete system in our religion, and it is this incomplete system which has been the weakness of Christianity. She likewise continues explaining this divergence from the modern Christianity we know today and the esoteric Christianity that was taught in the past. She states the following in her book, The Training and Work of an Initiate. There is an unbridged gulf in our modern Christianity between the mysticism of its deep spiritual truths and the symbolic and magical ceremonial of its ritual. This gulf, it is the task of the modern mystery schools to bridge our present-day efforts in this tradition. These, however, have in many cases reillumined their fires at an eastern altar, so that the bridge they build does not lead to the Christian context of the West. She's talking about uh, how many people who grew up Christian ended up becoming Buddhist or Hindu, uh, precisely because the Christianity of our present continent is superficial, devoid of any genuine depth. Therefore, many people have left uh, Christianity to pursue other faiths. And uh, sadly, uh, people uh, do not realize that Christianity has uh, in its genuine heart a profound teaching of how to unite with the divine. So those are their followers who seek initiation, meaning entering into the spiritual mysteries, instead of having revealed to them the deeper issues of their own faith, have to change their religion and follow other masters. How are we of the West, therefore, to bridge this gulf? We must do what the original Gnostics did, the original Gnostic Christians, of which Jesus was the founder. Seek to express in the metaphysical language of the mysteries of the teachings of our Lord, and therefore establish an esoteric Christian school, the initiation of the West. The Gnostics drew their inspiration from two main sources, and this is where we get into studies of psychology and uh, Kabbalah. The mysteries of Greece and the mysticism of Israel, the Kabbalah, with which our Lord Jesus was obviously very familiar. These are the sources wherein we shall find the mental and magical interpretation of our religion, which we shall supply the missing keys. So the word magic is, of course, a term that uh, people associate with people uh, something fantastic or illusory. But uh, the word magician comes from the word uh, mag, which means Indo-European word, which means priest. Someone who has a full connection with the divine. So a real priest is a, a person who controls magically their own mind, the air, the fires of the heart, their emotions, and the waters of the body through our will. A priest is a, is a person who is fully united and connected with God. It doesn't mean someone who follows some, uh, uh, enters a theological seminary and becomes indoctrinated. A real priest is a magician, someone who can control matter, not just physical, but psychological, and has full dominance over their own interior 
and that is a real human being, we could say, a complete human being. So the Christian Kabbalah is precisely teaches us this dynamic, the different levels of mind, energy, matter, consciousness, and will, of which uh, our present-day Christianity is divorced. So uh, the elements which were discarded from Christianity must be replaced if it is to become a true wisdom religion, a true esoteric school. And unless it can answer to the needs of the intellect as well as the heart, those who need the food of the intellect rather than the heart will seek it elsewhere, and we cannot blame them. So you look at modern-day Christianity, which says, believe in Jesus and you're saved. And there is no richness to the intellectual Kabbalistic symbolism of that faith, that tradition, which teaches us how to uh, enrich our mind as well as our heart. Not to just believe with our heart, but to uh, know from our soul. In relation to Kabbalah, we explain that there are, there are many books out there. There's a lot of facts and knowledge available in different traditions and different uh, schools. And it is very easy to get lost because there are different theories about this tradition which are abundant. And so in, in very direct terms, we state that genuine Kabbalah from, comes from the Hebrew Kabel, which means to receive Genuine Kabbalah is the knowledge we experience directly from God. We study certain texts intellectually in order to be prepared for work in the internal worlds. So that image of the tree of life I showed you of the ten spheres was something that I vividly experienced and verified before I even knew about the tree of life. I later found about the facts of this image and meditated on it in order to realize that this is something factual. I experienced it before I read about it. But genuine Kabbalah is what we verify for ourselves. But we do study intellectually to be prepared to interpret that language. So Samael and Vior stated the following about uh, this difference between intellectual Kabbalah and, you could say, conscious Kabbalah. On such a simple thing, scholars have written millions and volumes and theories that would turn anyone crazy who had the bad taste of becoming intellectualized with that entire arsenal. So knowing a lot of information intellectually is good if we become conscious of it, if we learn to experience what the texts teach us. Um, having an intellectual knowledge is good, but divorced of any practical application to our life is when it becomes problematic, where the head becomes a library, but yet we feel that desperation of not knowing God for ourselves. And so that's something that we have to reverse. We study in balance with practice and harmony. Which brings us to the image of uh, the famous Shoshana, or you could say the rose mentioned by Solomon in the Bible. This is an image of the, the 22 Hebrew letters of Kabbalah. And as we mentioned, the, the 22 letters represent principles, 22 laws, which brings us towards the 22 arcana or laws of the Tarot. The Torah is the Tarot the same wisdom given by uh, an angel by the name of Metatron to the Jewish people. And uh, the Jewish language is not the propriety, sole propriety of the people living in the Middle East or across the globe. This language pertains to all of humanity because it, it is a divine language that was given to us to express divine truths. And sadly, this language is abused as any other today. 
like Arabic or Sanskrit as well. Or Latin too. Latin has a lot of power. Which Dion Fortune says is the reason why the, the Catholic Church has existed for so long. Because a lot of the rituals were, were performed in Latin. And language has power. We can invoke divine forces through our speech. Which is why we pray out loud in certain practices and pronounce sacred sounds to invoke those forces. As the book of John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so these languages have a lot of power. And the Latin language, Dion Fortune says, is the reason why the Catholic Church has subsisted. But now they're doing the rituals in, in English, so it doesn't have as much power. Uh, but the sad part is many people perform these prayers and rituals, invoking these forces, but they don't know how to fully develop them. They're not aware of what they're doing. And so the Hebraic alphabet is a powerful language which can help us to understand many traditions, not only just Judaism or the Christian doctrine. Now, uh, when we state that one should learn the language of Kabbalah, we don't mean that one has to be fluent in Hebrew. Um, it simply means that one learned to memorize and understand the principles behind these letters in order to have an informed eye when we read scripture. So Dion Fortune stated the following in emphasis of this. It is not required of those who would use the Kabbalah as their yoga, as their way of union in the West, that they should acquire any extensive knowledge of the Hebrew language. All they need is to be able to read and write the Hebrew characters. And 22 is uh, pretty simple to learn, even if you didn't grow up Jewish uh, or were not uh, familiar with uh, that tradition. The modern Kabbalah has been pretty thoroughly naturalized in the English language, but it retains and must ever retain all its words of power in Hebrew, which is the sacred language of the West, just as Sanskrit is the sacred language of the East. So I emphasize that language has power. Mantras, sacred sounds. We can invoke God with our words. We can invoke blessing upon another human being or damnation upon that person. So how we use our speech determines how we follow God. There are those who have objected to the free employment of Sanskrit terms in occult literature. And the word occult, of course, doesn't just mean uh, satanic groups. The word occult comes from the Latin occultare, to cultivate the hidden. And no doubt they will object even more strongly to the employment of Hebrew characters. But their use is unavoidable. For every letter in Hebrew is also a number, and the numbers to which words add up are not only an important clue to their significance, but can also be used to the, express the relationships existing between different ideas and potencies. So the Hebrew letters have represent different elements, symbols, powers, principles. Uh, and when we read the uh, original Old Testament, the Tanakh or the Torah, when we look at the transliteration from English and from Hebrew, we can interpret the names of certain figures in order to understand, well, what are they representing? We look at the Hebrew letters and we see, well, this character represents this, such as Moshe represents the soul or willpower that knows how to work with Mem, the waters of, of God, Shin, the fire of the heart, and Er, Aleph, or He, the breath, the wind. So an intricate system and very useful and practical, which is what we emphasize above all things. We included an image in this next graphic of the 13th Arcana, Arcanum, of the Tarot. Arcana means laws. Arcanum means uh, law, singular. So the Tarot and the Torah are integral. 
they're united. And uh, in this image, uh, we see a man who is uh, in this card of immortality, number 13. Of course, lucky number, um, unlucky number 13, which has a lot of uh, reputa- disrepute and reputation in these times, which we're going to talk about through an example. These numbers represent principles, represent truths. And these images of the Tarot can help us to understand uh, where we are spiritually in relationship to God. So the tarot is not just some kind of uh, fortune-telling scandal or, or we could say, uh, ruse to cheat people of their money, which unfortunately many people approach the tarot in that way. The tarot are sacred. These are symbols. And physical readings are one thing, but learning to interpret these numbers from dreams or visions, we could say, is another. Is another. But one thing we'll emphasize is that numbers, mathematics associating with the Hebrew Kabbalah pertains to our experience of the truth, conscious principles. The quantitative translates into the qualitative. And Kabbalah, as the numerical science of Judaism, uh, not only applies to uh, the written scriptures of the Torah, but also to uh, how we relate to God. And I'll explain with an example. Uh, I had a inner experience many years ago in which I invoked my divinity. I awoke and had this vision of flying towards a uh, travel bureau in the astral plane. And of course, uh, in the world of dreams, we can fly, as we all may remember from dreams from our own experience. And so I remember flying towards this travel bureau. I remember there was a force, a divine force, my inner being was taking me, carrying me towards this travel bureau in the, some, uh, some city. Of course, this is a symbol, and I'll explain what it means. I entered the building, and I approached the counter, and I really desperately, in my heart, I felt this longing that I wanted to travel to the Middle East. And not physically, but travel towards, we can say, the higher dimensions of the Spirit. For if we look back at uh, the image of the Kabbalah, the Tree of Life, we say that the Middle East, in geographic or spiritual terms, is Tifereth. Because Tifereth astrologically relates to the sun. And we state that all these spheres of the tree of life have astrological influences, planetary influences. And we look at Tifereth, the soul or willpower, is where the sun rises. So the Tifereth is the east, in which we want to rise, we want to, we pray, like Muslims, Muslims pray towards the east in memory or in, in reminiscence of. Worshipping the divine, the Platonic logos, the sun. What force Muslims today say they don't worship the sun, but um, the tradition has its roots in that. Praying towards Mecca, the east, which is the heart, Tifereth. Middle east, meaning the middle of this tree of life, and here in this graphic, uh, the very center of things. And Tifereth is the world in Buddhist terms, is, a, is a nirvana, the heavenly realm. And so I was praying to my inner God, take me to the middle east. So my divine mother took me to... Uh, this place, this bureau. And the woman at the counter said, you really want to travel to the Middle East? And I said, yes. And we know in current times, the Middle East is filled with a lot of problems, conflicts, and wars. She said, you must pay $355. And in dreams, numbers have significance. You add the numbers together in order to get a 
at a sum total, which represents either one of the 22 main arc- major arcana of the tarot. 3 plus 5 plus 5 is 13. And 13 is the card of immortality, or we could say the card of death. Of course, people associate number 13 with death. But the death of what is the question. Really, the tarot, this card, emphasizes the death of our own uh, egotistical desires, our own selfishness, our own anger, our defects, our subjective self or ego. In order to reap the purity of the spirit, we must destroy the chaff, we could say. And as we reap, so shall we sow in this card of immortality. To become immortal, to become an inhabitant of that heavenly realm in the Middle East, on the tree of life, Tifereth, we must uh, uh, plant the appropriate seeds so the spirit can give birth. But of course, the seed has to die in order for the crop to flourish. So my divine mother, my inner divinity was telling me, you want to travel to the Middle East? You got to pay $355, meaning you have to reach Arcanum 13. You mean you have to die in your defects because only through the death of the impure is, is when the soul resurrects as taught in the life, by the life of Jesus. So it was a very powerful teaching. Uh, the many things happened in that experience too, but that's the main point. And uh, of course, we see in this card the Hebrew letter Mem, which means water. Which is where we get names like Miriam, Mary, which is the virgin uh, of Christianity, the mother of Jesus, a symbol of our own divine mother. And Miriam, she is the Hindu goddess Durga, or Kali, the goddess of death who kills the, the, our defects so that the soul can be liberated from those shells, that conditioning. And so H.P. Blavatsky states in Isis Unveiled, explaining how these numbers have qualitative principles that we need to interpret. It is recognized by modern science that all the higher laws of nature assume the form of quantitative statement. This is perhaps a fuller elaboration or more explicit affirmation of the Pythagorean doctrine, going back to the Greek mysteries. Numbers were regarded as the best representations of the laws of harmony which pervade the cosmos. So again, numbers represent principles. So again, our card 13 says, you must die to your defects if you want to become immortal, spiritually speaking. We know, too, that in chemistry, the doctrine of atoms and the laws of combination are actually, and, as it were, arbitrarily defined by numbers. As Mr. W. Archer Butler has expressed it, the world is, then, through all its departments, a living arithmetic in its development, a realized geometry in its repose. Likewise, Samael and Vior states in Teron Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, everything is numbers and mathematics. The number is holy and infinite. In the universe, everything is measurement and weight. For the Gnostics, God is a geometrist. Mathematics are sacred. No one was admitted into the school of Pythagoras if they were not knowledgeable about mathematics, music, etc. Numbers are sacred, he states. So again, numbers represent values. And the 22 Hebrew letters, the 22 cards of the Torah, teach us things that we need to do spiritually. So if you receive a card in the internal dimensions, they're showing you this is what you need to do to study in order to develop your soul. So Kabbalah is not everything. We also study the teachings of alchemy. The word alchemy has Egyptian roots, but also Middle Eastern as well. Or Persian, we could say. Allah, kimia, chemistry of God, to fuse or cast a metal, kimia. This is where we get the word such as chemistry. From al-chem, the land of Egypt. 
in the Buddhist teachings of uh, Tantra, we find, uh, or in Buddhism, they teach it as tantrism, Tantra, which means continuum, unbroken stream from the Sanskrit tantram, meaning loom or warp, a groundwork system doctrine from tan to stretch or extend. Alakimiya, to fuse oneself with God, is the work of energy. People commonly associate alchemy as the transformation of lead into gold, which in Europe was uh, performed by a few masters, uh, many for, as an exception. Many people try to perform this feat, not understanding that alchemy is a symbolic teaching. To transform the lead into gold is to transform the, the mind, or we could say ego, into the spiritual substance of God the density of the soul into the purity of the spirit. They could say the lead of our physicality, or the density of our body into the purest forces of God represented by the tree of life. And so alchemy, how we fuse with God, is how we use our forces physically, psychologically, spiritually. We have to form a continuum within our body, our mind, our heart. We have to learn how to make certain forces flow within us through spiritual practices, such as through mantras, sacred sounds, and meditation. So Tantra is the continuum of vital energy that sustains all existence. And second, it also refers to a class of knowledge and practices that harnesses that vital force in order to transform the, the disciple. So Tantra, or the Tantras of Buddhism are a scripture, forms of teachings given by Padmasambhava, many Buddhist masters, as well as uh, different other prophets of Buddhism, we could say. Uh, but also, Tantra is also how we work with energy within us. Because without energy, we cannot live physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. Likewise, to know God, we need power, which is why we included in this image uh, uh, a painting of the Christ alchemist, who, uh, represented by Jesus, is a person who has resurrected from the dead, the dead spiritually, not just physically, but psychologically. We are dead if we don't uh, know God. But when we die to our defects, we can resurrect within the Lord, within us. The Middle Eastern teachings uh, talk about alchemy in the following form. Uh, there's a famous Iranian myth called the Cup of Jamshid, which is similar to the Holy Grail of uh, Christianity. And we state in these studies that alchemy is the union of forces within man and woman. In Tantrism, which is very popular in, in the West, especially now, uh, refers to the sexual cooperation between a husband and wife, in which man and woman, when they unite uh, physically, they also unite in mind and heart. The sexual connection is a, the flow or continuum of forces which exists between the couple when they're sexually aroused, in which that vital force is inflamed, it becomes active. When a couple knows how to work with that energy without expelling it, that force forms a continuum within the body, within the mind, and the heart. And Christianity refers to the creative sexual power as the Holy Ghost. So to be baptized by water is a symbol of working with that power, to be born from that power. Because Jesus said you must be born again of water and spirit. Not just physical water, as in the rite of baptism, which is a symbol he instead referred to how physically you can give birth to a child when man and woman unite. But when man and woman unite and conserve that power, they can give birth to the soul. 
through, the, through spiritual practices, by learning to work in a matrimony and to conserve that power in order to give birth to God within oneself. And the cup of Jamshid represents that myth or that teaching. Where uh, it was stated in popular myth that uh, all the seven heavens of the cosmos can be perceived by looking into the elixir of immortality within this chalice. So the chalice is a symbol of the feminine sexual organs. And uh, the spear that pierced the side of Jesus is a symbol of the phallus, of the male sexual member. Now, when Jesus was crucified, he physically lived this drama in order to teach something symbolic. The cross that he died upon was a sexual symbol, referring to the vertical phallus and the horizontal uterus, united. And through that power of God, can, one can die to one's impurities, which is, of course, is a painful process for the mind, for the ego, but uh, one that can be accomplished through spiritual works. And the cup of Jamshid is referring to that creative potential of God in which uh, by looking into those energies that we cultivate through a matrimony, one can awaken one's spiritual perception to perceive the seven heavens. In Islam, they refer to seven heavens. You could say seven chakras of Hinduism, of the spine, but also seven dimensions, referring back to that tree of life. And Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi states in a very beautiful way, the nature of sexuality and how people view sex today, as well as uh, those who knew the mysteries of sexuality in its depth. If in thirst you drink water from a cup, you see Allah in it. Those who are not in love with Allah will only see their faces in it. So the water is again refers to sexual energy, creative power. The book of Genesis talks about the genesiatic waters of life, which give birth to the world, not a physical world, but our spiritual world, our spiritual life, through seven days, seven initiations, seven steps up that tree of life, which refer to the seven lower spheres of the tree of life itself, leading up towards the spirit. And so uh, if we drink from water from a cup, if we learn to look at a matrimony in a divine sense, not just the union of, uh, for physical pleasure, but to use that creative power for God. We can see God in it. But those who are impassioned by their own lust and desire only see sex as something uh, filthy, as impure, as something to satisfy carnal pleasure and not to uh, cultivate a relationship with God, which is what Rumi is talking about. And many famous philosophers, including Friedrich Nietzsche, author of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, knew this teaching of alchemy. We colluded in this image the god Mercury holding the famous caduceus upon which he awoke the dead souls of limbo into a new life. Mercury is referring to the creative power of God called the Holy Ghost. And Mercury uh, as an alchemical tradition coming from the European tradition of, or even the Middle East as well is a symbol of uh, the sexual power which, uh, if we cultivate within ourselves, can rise up our spine from the sexual organs, up two energetic channels of the spine, represented by the famous glyph of Mercury, the two serpents rising up the, the spinal medulla, which have different names in different traditions. Um, this 
image refers to how that mercurial power can rise up within us and illuminate our mind. And the famous halo of the saints is a representation of how those prophets took that power, conserved it, and raised it to the mind in order to illuminate it. Likewise, we have the symbol of uh, Halloween in which the pumpkin gourd, which is the symbol of the mind, becomes purified in order to be illuminated by a single candle. So uh, we must first purify our mind, remove the guck and filth from that gourd. And the gourd, we say someone is out of their gourd, we're referring to their intellect, their mind. And the gourd, when it's purified, or when it's cleansed of its internal material elements, when, it's, when we uh, clean it from its interior, in the tradition of Halloween, we place a candle inside in order to illuminate it. Therefore, that evening becomes hallowed, holy. The darkness of our spirituality has ended in which we are now resurrected into a new life. So uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who uh, very famous for saying uh, in his book, God is dead, knew this teaching very well. And of course, he said that the Judeo-Christian God is dead, meaning the anthropomorphic Jehovah that people worship doesn't exist. That God is uh, not real. But instead, the superman, the superhuman being, the divine logos, the divine uh, creator God, who is our own divinity, Mercury, exists, and that we need to know how to worship that. So Nietzsche explains the following teaching regarding uh, alchemy and also Kabbalah and psychology as well in an excerpt from a chapter called On the Rabble, which I want to read for you in depth due to its uh, beautiful lyricism and its depth. And I'll explain and I'll stop at periods to uh, talk about some of the symbolism of his language. Life is a well of joy, but where the rabble also drinks, there are all wells are poisoned. So the rabble are those who uh, are base, egotistical, sinful, lustful, desirous. I appreciate all that is clean, but I do not like to see the grinning snouts of the unclean. People who uh, look at sexuality as something filthy, as something passionate and carnal. They cast their eyes into the well. Now their disgusting smile reflects back up to me from the well. And what is a well? Well, is a uh, referring to our body. Our body is the earth and our creative seminal uh, matter, the semen, whether in man and woman, the seminal fluids, is water. And uh, one can either look at that energy as something, uh, can use it for carnal pleasure or to conserve it and to use it for God, can give birth to the spirit. We could say this is the holy water. The holy water is by which we have to become baptized by transforming that energy into light, into fire, through specific practices of tantra. They have poisoned the holy water with their lustfulness. And when they call their filthy dreams pleasure, they poison the language too. The word pleasure in Hebrew is Eden. Eden is not a physical garden in the Middle East. It refers to the sexual bliss that a husband and wife uh, cultivate when they're united. But the terrible part is that lust enters the mind. That serpentine power tempts us to use that energy in the wrong way and not to conquer that serpent. And that serpent act, uh, that power incites the couple to want to fornicate, meaning to waste or expel that power in a moment of pleasure. But the spiritual teachings of alchemy teach us that that serpent, if we 
step on its head and control it can rise up our spine as the serpentine power of God when we refrain from the orgasm, when we refrain from that physical act of uh, trying to engender a child physically. Instead, we can conserve that power to engender the spiritual child of alchemy, the golden child of Christ within us. But of course, we have to control that serpent. And uh, they have poisoned the holy water with their lustfulness. They look at sex as something filthy, as carnal. And when they call their filthy dreams pleasure, meaning they took the language that could, we can describe sex as something filthy and poisoned. One thing I will mention is an excerpt from uh, the book of Hebrews, which states, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So the bed undefiled, meaning to not orgasm, to not spill that energy, which can be conserved and used for God. Because that energy can create, or it can destroy us. This is the power of Shiva Shakti in Hinduism. Shiva Shakti is the creator God and destroyer God. That energy can give life or it can give death in a spiritual sense. But what happened to me? How did I redeem myself from nausea? Meaning this disgust with my everyday life, feeling that I am spiritually empty and looking for meaning. Who rejuvenated my eyes? My spiritual eyes, my spiritual sight. How did I manage to fly to the height where no more rabble sits by the well? And that height is the mountain that in the book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is emphasized many times. Where the prophet, the fictional prophet, Zarathustra, mentioned by, narrated by Nietzsche, is on a mountaintop. And that mountain is a symbol of the superior worlds, the superior dimensions of the tree of life. So you have a dream of, of climbing a mountain is very good meaning you're entering into the spiritual path, that you're climbing that, direct, that difficult path of the spinal column, up the 33 canyons or vertebrae of the spine, in order to raise that power of God back to its source, which Nietzsche calls the feathered serpent, or uh, the Aztecs call it Quetzalcoatl, or the Mayans Kukulkan, the, the serpent and the dove of Christianity. Did my nausea itself create wings for me and water-divining powers? Truly into the highest regions I had to fly in order to rediscover the wellspring of pleasure again. So uh, this natural disgust one feels with the state of affairs of humanity is uh, what helps us fly into the wilderness in order to discover God, to know God. And what are these wings that emerge from water-divining powers? These wings are the wings of mercury we see in this head which the Germanic myth, you see the Valkyria with the warrior woman with the winged uh, helmets uh, immortalized by Wagner, which is a symbol of when that energy rises to the brain. The centers of the mind are fully awakened and the wings of the spirit are active, of the eagle. And likewise, that is the wings of the angel, of the perfected human being. And the waters, of course, is the creative powers, which can give us access to the heights of God. And uh, the highest regions I had to fly to rediscover that wellspring again. Because that energy of the Holy Spirit comes from above and descends down the tree of life into our physical body, into our sexuality. Now it's a matter of returning that energy backward, inward and up to the source. Oh, I found it, my brothers. Here in the highest regions, the wellspring of pleasure gushes for me. And there is a life from which no rabble drinks. Almost too forcefully you flow well of pleasure, meaning well of Eden, the original pristine, primordial uh, consciousness, 
humanity once shared with God in the past, but lost. And often you empty the cup again and wanting to fill it. As summer in the highest regions with cold springs and blissful silence, meaning silence and meditation, in which we can talk with God directly. O come, my friends, and let the silence become even more blissful. For it is our height and our homeland too. Too high and steep we live here for all the unclean and their thirst. Because people with the, uh, who are attached to lust and desire always want to satisfy that act perpetually, but become depleted and exhausted. And their thirst is unsatiable. The thirst of lust can only be conquered through uh, comprehension, in which we attain the stillness of the waters of the mind and the heart and the sex. And it is in that silence we can really talk with God. Cast your pure eyes into the wellspring of pleasure, you friends. How could it become murky from that? It shall laugh back at you with its purity. So in the internal world, water is a symbol of creative energy and also the mind. So when the waters are still, it means that the mind is silent, pristine, and can reflect the heavenly images of God from above, the stars, which is the symbol of the divine as well. We'll touch upon psychology last. Psychology comes from the Greek psyche logos. From the Greek word of psyche meaning soul and logos meaning the principle governing the cosmos. Plato talks about the logos or absolute good, which is God, Christ, we can say in Christian terms, which is not a person but an energy. Likewise, uh, true psychology is the relationship between soul and logos, psyche and God. It is not just the study of the mind, although we do place heavy emphasis on the study of ourselves. So psychology in these times has become divorced of its uh, spiritual roots. People think in these times psychology pertains to the study of the brain, ignoring that the physical brain is just a vehicle of mind, as we looked at, back at that tree of life of the Kabbalah. And sadly, psychology now is uh, disoriented. They've accomplished many uh, ways of treating certain illnesses, uh, physically and also psychologically. But uh, sadly, they ignore that real psychology, as taught in ancient schools, was the relationship of the soul with the divine, as represented by Cupid or Eros and Psyche in the Greek myth. In the Greek myth, Psyche was asleep and was awakened by Eros, Cupid, the god of love. And of course, Eros is where we get the word eroticism. as a symbol of the Christic divine energy, which is called the Holy Ghost in some terms, uh, but also the, the divine power of God, which can awaken sleeping beauty. Again, sleeping beauty was awakened by a prince. The soul, the full potential of God in us, can be awakened by the union of man and woman. Likewise, with divine eroticism, the soul awakens to its full potential. And psychology helps us to understand the inner obstacles in our mind, in our heart, in our body, that prevent us from fully using those energies in an appropriate way, in a divine way. Some island viewer explains how psychology um, is practiced in modern times. And he mentioned uh, emphatically the need to study the original roots of the traditions. He states that teachers of schools and colleges and universities must profoundly study the revolutionary psychology taught by all the international Gnostic movements. This psychology is a constant revolution and is radically different from anything previously known by this name, meaning we have to go into combat against our own inner afflictions. 
to face our own psychological causes of suffering, to change them. Undoubtedly, we can state without fear of being mistaken that in the course of the centuries that have preceded us since the profound night of all times, psychology has never fallen as low as is presently in this age of rebels without a cause, the little henchmen of rock and roll. Moreover, and to the breaking point of disgrace, the retarded and reactionary psychology of these modern times has lost its sense of being and every direct contact with its true origin. Yes, in these times of sexual degeneration and total deterioration of the mind, not only is it impossible to accurately define the term psychology, but shockingly, the fundamental subjects of psychology are truly unknown. And this is evidenced by uh, the fact that psychology thinks that the mind is the brain only, ignoring that the soul is beyond the mind, and the mind is, uses the physical brain as a vehicle. So we study not just physical psychology, but also spiritual psychology, which is the relationship of the soul with God and all its departments and qualities. And uh, we have to look at the news today to see the widespread prostitution of humanity and many of the crimes it is committing to understand that really the psychology of our present humanity is very degenerated. It is uh, divorced from divine principles. There's much good being performed... uh, by, uh, by many, but uh, we see that there is a great trauma associated with uh, our present state of being. In order to rectify that, we look at the original roots of psychology in order to change ourselves, because humanity always seeks to change things from the outside in, ignoring that we can only change from the inside out. And so uh, in this image, we have a temple that is in decrepitude, which... Uh, we chose because it emphasizes how psychology used to be taught in the ancient schools, but was uh, adulterated and lost by the mistaken interpretations of, of certain followers. And psychology has ancient roots. It's been disguised in many teachings, many forms of literature, philo- uh, philosophy as well. Those who mistakenly suppose that psychology is the most recent contemporary science are really misguided according to Samael and Vior. Because psychology is a very ancient science that has its origins in the old schools of archaic mysteries. It is impossible for the snob, the ultra-modern swindler, the backward individual, to define the origin of that which is known as psychology, since it is obvious that psychology never existed under such a name, with the exception of this contemporary epoch. Why? Because for this or that reason, psychology was always suspected of subversive tendencies in religious or political matters. Thus, it was forced to be concealed by multiple disguises. Thus, since ancient times, on the different scenarios of the theaters of life, psychology has always played its role by being intelligently disguised with the costumes of philosophy. We can look to the writings of Dostoevsky, of Nietzsche, as well as uh, Plato, and uh, the writings of Shakespeare to find many psychological teachings. Many people study these writings for their depth and they convey many esoteric principles of how to unite the soul with God. And so the, many of these psychological teachings were hidden in a cryptic way in some of our most venerated traditions uh, meant to be read by those who had an informed eye. And so Samael and Vior explains that these traditions were integral. They were not separate. 
we included an image of a sacred dancer of the whirling dervishes of the Middle East, whose dances represent cosmic principles. The whirling of the Sufis in gyration together represent the navigation of the planets around the sun and the cosmos. And so uh, as Samuel and Vior states in Fundamentals of Gnostic Education, psychology was always connected to philosophy, to the authentic objective art, to science, and to religion in the ancient schools of mysteries from Greece, Egypt, Rome, India, Persia, Mexico, Peru, Assyria, Chaldea, etc. Yes, in those ancient times, psychology was cleverly hidden behind the graceful forms of sacred dancers, or behind the enigma of cryptic hieroglyphs, or beautiful sculptures, or in poetry or tragedy, and even within the delectable music of the temples. Indeed, before science, philosophy, art, and religion split asunder in order to subsist as independent parts, Psychology reigned in all the very ancient schools of mysteries. This is because uh, this is the fundamental science to help us to understand ourselves, understand our inner obstacles that prevent illumination. When in the initiated colleges, the mystical schools of Gnosis that existed in those countries, ceased to operate due to the Kali Yuga or the dark age in which we live, or we still live, psychology survived within the symbolism of several esoteric and pseudo-esoteric schools of this modern world, and especially with the Gnostic esotericism. Profound analysis and in-depth investigation allow us to comprehend with complete meridian clarity that the different systems and psychological doctrines that existed in the past and that presently exist can be divided into two categories. First, the doctrines that are conceived as much such as many intellectuals suppose them to be. Modern psychology belongs, in fact, to this category. Second, the doctrines that study the human being from the point of view of the revolution of the consciousness. So what is this revolution? Meaning to go not against other people, but within ourselves. Because fundamentally in our own root, our own defects prevent us from knowing God. As Arcanum 13 emphasizes, the ego must die in order for the soul to resurrect. It is a fight mentioned in Islam as jihad or mujahidah, which means to strive against uh, the infidel, which is not outside, but within us, our own defects. This second category truly contains the original and most ancient doctrines. Only these doctrines allow us to comprehend the living origins of psychology and their profound significance. To conclude, we'll emphasize all three sciences of Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology through scripture and also the teachings of the 14th Dalai Lama, who is a great master of Buddhism and of Gnosis. So we have, we can call three brains or three centers of activity, physiological and psychological. We have the physical brain or the intellectual mind. We have the heart or center of emotions. And then we have our sexual organs. And as I mentioned to you, the caduceus of Mercury, that image of the spinal column with the two serpents, represents the, the energies of Tantra, which circulate through our body, our mind, our heart. And so the holy eight, we could say, the number eight, represents that continuum of forces within our psychology and our body. And so our mental health, our psychological well-being, our emotional well-being pertains to how we use energy, how we direct it, how we conserve it and use it. Which is why the Dalai Lama stated, in the view of Tantra, the body's vital energies are the vehicles of the mind. When the vital energies are pure and subtle, one's state of mind will be accordingly affected. By transforming these bodily energies, we transform the state of consciousness. So pure psychology is based on how we use those energies uh, for our inner God. 
It is vital to understand and develop the conviction that consciousness has the potential to increase to an infinite degree. And lastly, we'll conclude with the uh, teachings from the Gospel of Mark. When a lawyer of Israel was tempting Jesus to explain the commandments. And in the first commandment, Jesus answered in order to explain the nature of Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology. The first is, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah Elohim our God, Jehovah Elohim is one. Which is the famous declaration of witnessing in Judaism, which they close their eyes and say, Shema Yisrael, Yod Chava Eloheinu, Yod Chava Echad. Meaning, uh, the following statement given by Jesus. They say Adonai, but which means Lord, but the real translation of the Hebrew, original Hebrew is Jehovah Elohim, of God. And they close their eyes because they're showing humility before the divine, to not look directly at God, because to do so is to be obliterated. That power is so intense. And you shall love Jehovah Elohim, your God, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So what is this heart is our emotional center. Likewise, our soul is our willpower, our human soul, all our mind, our intellect, and likewise, all of our strength, our sexual power. That forms a continuum that unites us with God. When we use our energies and use it completely for our divine being, we truly love God with all of our soul. We cannot love God just with our mind and heart. As the Catholics, they say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They cross themselves from head, heart, and then the left to the right shoulder, ignoring the sexual energy, the Holy Ghost. So they don't worship the third logos, the, the, which they is another name for the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Gnostic Christians, we cross ourselves from the head to the heart, to the sexual organs, and then to the shoulders, because we're uh, blessing ourselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in sex. The Father in the head, the Son or Christ in the heart, and the Holy Spirit in our sexual organs. And then we raise that up to our heart to illuminate our soul. So these are forces, not people, as I mentioned. And then lastly, the second is this, you shall love that your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we first love our God by using our forces, psychologically speaking, for God. And then we love our neighbor as ourselves. We extend that compassion to others. So in synthesis, as we're going to explain in the coming weeks, the other pillars, uh, Gnostic science is the union of uh, Hebraic Kabbalah, Egyptian alchemy, or Middle Eastern alchemy, as well as uh, Greek dialectics, as we emphasize. And so these teachings are really one, three aspects of one thing, which we study in depth and also separately. you have any questions? Um. The word apocalypse in Greek, it means the unveiling of truth. Yes. So what is this, what is your take on that? What's going on, you know, when people talking about, you know, obviously I don't believe in all that, but the unveiling of truth means something. Are people, are they awakening their consciousness? What is your take on that? Unveiling is a direct conscious endeavor. And as you saw from the first graphic, which we have up here again, uh, I am the one who has been, is, and will be, and no mortal has lifted my veil. To unveil the truth is to remove the veil, uh, coverings of our own spiritual perception, or the, our own ignorance. Apocalypse or the apocalypse refers to the tremendous death and revolution of the, our defects in order to awaken to the 
full potentiality of the soul. And that book, the, the, the Apocalypse, written by John, is very Kabbalistic, very abstract. It refers to certain future events that will happen, but in a symbolic way, not literal, as many Christians att- try to interpret. They're, they try to read that, that scripture without knowing Kabbalah is like trying to read Shakespeare without knowing English. It's impossible. It's gibberish. You read it, what is this? But you know the symbolic language of God? Ah, yes, this is teaching something psychological, which we're going to have a course on the book of Revelation at one point. But the unveiling is precisely our direct work with the divine, the divine feminine, our inner goddess, our divine mother. She has a veil over her face like the famous burkas of the Middle East, which is a symbol of how those women were showing not just modesty, but the veiling of Isis, which only the husband can unveil in Middle Eastern culture. So unveiling is a, precisely what we're trying to do, practically speaking. But people, as to, in terms of awakening to those truths as a humanity, we see that humanity is not awakening in a positive sense, but is realizing the fruits of having eaten from the uh, tree of knowledge of evil, good and evil, we could say, from the evil side. Uh, people are becoming more aware of the evil they have inside as we look at humanity. But if we know how to work practically with Gnostic science, Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology, we can awaken in a positive way, meaning removing the conditions of the mind and develop the full, full potentiality of the soul. When you talk about the, uh, the base of the Kabbalah, the tree of life, and you talk about the dream, is that the same base as like in Freemasonry when they talk about the base consciousness in true esoteric Freemasonry? Well, yeah, the body is... Uh, and moving up to 33, to the 33rd level. We say that uh, in Kabbalah, the basis is Yesod. Yesod in Hebrew means foundation, represented in the tree of life, as I'm going to show you. Uh, Yesod is the center of the pillar of, uh, or the middle pillar, the middle path. Our physical body is, we can say, tetradimensional. Our physical body exists in this third dimensional plane. But there is a fourth dimensional component represented by Yesod. So the physical body is the third dimension. Our vital body, our vital energies, is Yesod, the fourth dimension, in which we uh, gain uh, all of our vitality. And all the other spheres of the tree of life can move and exist through us integrally as a result of that energy, that vital force. So these, are not, so these Sephiroth, or spheres, we could say, and the Kabbalah, are not something distinct and separate from one another. Really, we could say they're all integrated. They flow. They exist here and now altogether. Because we say that in a moment we can experience thought, feeling, and sensations simultaneously. Uh, although with a predisposition towards one sense of thought or emotion or the other. But the foundation of Freemasonry is Yesod, the vital, the vital power. And as Jesus taught, the foundation of our spirituality is to love God with all thy strength. And that sexual power is the stone of the temple. How we use that energy determines our spirituality. And as the stone that the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner, according to the gospel. And is it not marvelous in our eyes? So Yesod is that foundation stone of our spirituality. And this temple is, of course, the Kabbalah, the tree of life. And represented in Freemasonry by the two pillars. On the right you have Jaquin, and on the left you have Boaz. In the middle you have the spinal column. Uh, who, is there a Zarathustra? Is that the same as Zarathustra? 
Zoroaster. Yeah, Zoroaster. Yeah. So Nietzsche gave a fictional retelling of that uh, prophet. Zoroaster is, is, um, is that a prophet? Yes, he's a great master. Yeah, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. Zarathustra is the That's a prophet of Ayurveda. religion like religion. Yes, and Nietzsche really worshipped, uh, really venerated the the Middle Eastern doctrine. Do you ever get into, uh, are you going to get into Hermeticism? Yes. So everything we talked about in terms of Tantra and psychology is Hermetic science. Because, Hermes was big on science. Because right? Hermes is the doctrine of... Uh, Sealing one's energies, not wasting it, not expelling it. Can I ask a couple questions? Yes. Um, man, our Torah and the Torah and ter- the Torah cards—that's basically the same word. Yes. Okay. And Torah means law. Law. And likewise, Arcana means laws. And so the Torah card. Am I pronouncing the Torah? Is that how I pronounce? Yes, not the Tarot. Silent T the at tarot, the end. Oh, right, the Tarot cards. That's so. That's just some. Okay. It sounds to me too because I'm not the same situation as the three of you here but it sounds to me like everything is symbolism you're, you're, you're coming the way it's coming across there's virtually nothing that isn't symbolism yeah, and the scriptures are you know again the tree of life is a symbol yeah. for realities and the reality is one thing but the symbol is a language to help us understand uh, different religions and all the religions are symbolic okay and the last thing is there's a movie called the 39 steps I don't know if you've ever seen it in black and white no. the original by Hitchcock and at the end sure. of the movie, uh, there's a guy that's called, uh, and it's not really giving anything away, but his, if you ever see it, his name's Mr. Memory. Sure. And he winds up being shot, and Mr. Memory is a guy that does nothing but memorize facts. And when he's shot and he's dying, and in, in, in the hands of the people he's dying, he says you do the right thing, and somehow that's what you were talking about, knowledge without... The, Excellent. Uh, yeah, without, right, yeah. Yeah, it was just just a thought. If you ever, if you ever get a chance, I like Hitchcock. I've seen his films. Yeah. I, I used to be a film student, so uh, yeah, I know quite a bit. The first thirty nine steps is the one you want to see. If you want to see it, it's the better one. And uh, you know, this knowledge intellectually is is useful when we apply it, uh, which is why in our the literature we have available, we have many exercises that help us to put into practice. Any other questions or comments? Um, one last. Uh, Solomon, doesn't that mean sun and moon? Shalom, uh, come from shalom, means peace. Shalom, uh, Solomon is the king of peace. and uh, Or you could say salam in Arabic, same roots. Uh, or you could say Shalaman or solar man, yeah, solar, yeah. the sun. So the man is represented by the moon. And the soul, or the soul, or, or soul that is fully developed is the Christic divine logos of Plato. Represented again by Tifereth, which is where the top trinity finds its center, as we see in this image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have their center of gravity in the heart. Tifereth, our willpower. And um, Solomon was a master physically who existed uh, in an ancient time. But he also represents a stage of initiation or development that's very high. Someone who's achieved a state we call resurrection, which the soul is completely purified. There is no defect. And you can look at that demarcation of stages of masters or spiritual beings, such as through the three magi that have visited Jesus, the black king, the white king, and the yellow king. The black king is a master or being who is 
developed spiritually, but has ego, a lot of it. Therefore, his soul is black, represented by King Saul in the Old Testament. King uh, David is the white king. He is a master who is a very pure soul, has a lot of white, can transmit a lot of light, we can say. As the Torah says, Saul killed his 1,000 enemies, but King David killed his 10,000. Referring to the multiplicity of defects one has inside the enemies of Israel or the enemies of God, which are our own pride, vanity, lust, etc. And so uh, you could say that uh, King Saul killed a lot, of, a lot of defects to become a king, a spiritual king. But King David killed 10,000, meaning he's a very high master. And 10 refers to the 10 spheres of the tree of life. He's fully manifested and realized that whole glyph. Solomon in, in Arabic, he was a, uh, he was a conqueror of um, S-U-L-E-M-I-N. He was a conqueror who conquered um, the Iberian Peninsula. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of history associated with uh, the Middle East, but uh, which uh, I look into. But uh, one thing is uh, history, and another thing is the teaching they gave, which is something else. And, uh, and uh, you know, one has to be informed about history. It's important. Uh, but sadly, a lot of professors of universities study the historical material aspect, and they don't know the symbol- symbolism of that teaching, which means they, the intellect is very fat, but emotionally and spiritually they're dead. Uh, so we balance both. We study both. What about, um, you got into magicians, which I got it, I finally found out what magicians was really about before you mentioned it, but sorcerers, are you going to get into that at all? Yeah, I mean, there's positive magic and black magic. Yeah. Um, white magic is, a, a, a white magician is a being who, following Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology, is someone who does the will of God for the benefit of others. So love thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thy neighbor is thyself. To serve God within one's very being and consciousness for the benefit of, other, of humanity. That's a white magician. Someone who uses the power of God selflessly for the benefit of humanity, for others. A black magician is someone who develops power within the mind, meaning desire, hate, anger, pride, fear, defects. And they have many powers, such as, uh, as mentioned in the Old Testament and uh, many other scriptures, where they have power over matter and certain abilities, but... Sadly, it's subjective and limited. They have power in hell. Hell is a state of mind, ego, defects. Also the inferior dimensions of nature, which we access when we have nightmares. Nightmares are real places, or uh, different dimensions of the mind and, and nature, which exist in the subtle forms. And so black magicians have power in hell. But God has power in heaven, hell, and beyond. Therefore, a white magician transcends both... Uh, physicality and uh, even heaven, this tree of life. Because beyond the tree of life is the origin we call the absolute, represented in Kabbalah in, in different names as the Ein Sof, Ein Sof Or, and Ayin. A white magician is a, in principle, a white magician is a being who serves God and only does the will of God. So Jesus is a great magician. He healed many sick persons. He had power to illuminate others and help others. Weren't the Magi, if I remember, too, weren't they Zoroastrians? Historically, yeah. And they were, they were Parsis. Par- right, Parsis, yeah. And Parsi means worshiper of fire. And Jesus is the Lord of fire. Right. The God, uh, and you look at the inscription of the name of Jesus. Uh, well, Inri, 
uh, you could say is uh, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judiatum, when he was crucified. It also translates in Latin as Ignis Natura Renovator Integra, meaning, yeah. meaning uh, fire renews nature incessantly. Huh. And the book of Paul, or the teachings of Paul of Tarsus say that our God is a consuming fire. So it's an energy, which manifests in our mind, our heart, but more importantly in the sexual energy, which if we use that fire for God, can help us to, through our, by working in a marriage, by working with the cross. We follow the Via Dolorosa, the path of pain. Of the, I mean, the ego suffers, but the soul is rejuvenated in order to raise that energy up the spine to the brain. And Golgotha, in, in, uh, I believe in Hebrew, means place of skull, place of the skull, right. in which the skull becomes illuminated with light and fire. And that's the path that Jesus taught physically. So he was a radical master to physically teach that. Very uh, great sacrifice he made. But a magician is a, a being who follows that path. A white magician. But a black magician is another thing. And there are many of them in these times. And they're the ones running the world. The dark oh yeah, they're, they're in politics and, you know, there's many peop- there are many famous celebrities are awakened and evil and you know, very common. They know how the psychology works. Yeah, and they have power because they manipulate people and they are in a position. And, um, and the, you know, they're very common. Samael and Vior says they're more common than, than weeds. They're very, they're abundant everywhere. Uh, you look at places like Haiti and, you know, whole countries like Colombia where there are many, in North America has a lot of them. They're not just isolated to one place, but this whole planet is filled with many of these beings. What is, is a suggestion maybe not to pay attention to them? Well, yeah. I mean, if you identify with a black magician, they can steal your energy. That's how they get power. They steal energy from other people. But, uh, well, I mean, I'm even talking about the politicians. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, I look at the news sometimes because I'm curious, but I look at the book of Revelation again and see that you know the time of humanity is near its end. Yeah. Uh, you just look at the facts of the wars and chaos going on. Yeah, it's... Reaching its culmination. But uh, I personally dedicate myself more to meditating to uh, change what I can change and not worry about the rest. Because right. I can't change the politicians or do anything about them. You know? Even the prophets like Jesus and, and Buddha couldn't, didn't change it. Well, they changed many, but uh, humanity crucified them, poisoned them, destroyed them, etc. So... Uh, what can we do? We can only, as some aisle and viewers said, save the hat from the drowning man, which is the sad reality. Instead, save yourself and then try to help others. That's the, how we can make any effective change in other people. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.